G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. George Whitfield, um, George Whitfield, have you heard the name before? He was probably the greatest preacher of the 18th century, so this in the 1700s, George Whitfield. Um, he tells a story that he claimed... Um, shaped his own sermons and keep in mind he was greatest preacher in his day pretty much without compare Uh, he tells a story that I sorely hope shapes my preaching Uh, but he more than that I think it's a story that ought to cause every Christian to examine their own faith Uh, and perhaps indeed whether you're a Christian or not to examine what you believe um, and uh, and why you believe it See, see what you make of the story Whitfield tells the story He says, in the year 1675, the Archbishop of Canterbury was acquainted with an actor named Mr. Butterton. One day, the Archbishop said to Butterton, tell me, Mr. Butterton, what is the reason you actors on stage can affect your audiences with speaking of things imaginary as if they were real, while we in church speak of things real which our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary. Why, my Lord, says Butterton, the reason is very plain. We, actors on stage, speak of things imaginary as if they were real. And you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. And Whitfield, um, in light of that story, said, therefore, I will never be a velvet-mouthed preacher. You know, he wanted, he wanted to know, he wanted his congregation to know that the real things that he spoke of are really real. They're not imaginary. They're not make-believe. This isn't fairy stories that we go on with from the pulpit. He wanted never to leave the impression that in preaching Christ, he preached only of make-believe and fairy stories. But I think, but Butterton's, Butterton's got a damning uh, summary, hasn't he? We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real and you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. Now, may I extend that for just a moment uh, to all of us? Could it be that we Christians hold to some of our beliefs, some of the convictions that we speak out of our mouths and we say are real and true and right and We say they're real, but we hold on to them more like they're unreal, more like they're imaginary, more like they are make-believe in practice in our lives, more like they are hypothetical. Some of our convictions, perhaps, about God's will for our lives and how He'd have us live, is it really His will or do we treat it kind of like it's make-believe? Some of our hopes, you know, the things that we say we believe and the things that we look forward to, uh, where we hope, uh, believe... I have convictions that we're going in the hereafter. Some of our beliefs about God, perhaps, perhaps our, our sense of assurance that stems from his character, our uh, confidence in his forgiveness of us. We say these things are real, really real, realer than real. But do we always match it in our hearts? We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real, while us Christians speak of things real as if they were imaginary. Um, I suppose the thought that I'd like us to bring to Luke chapter 4 this morning, which is where we're going to be concentrating, is simply this. Do we sometimes live like there's a gap between our real life 
And on the other hand, our convictions about God and Christ and uh, the gospel and heaven and hell and all the rest. Have you ever experienced something of a disconnect between the real and sure and solid hope that we profess with our mouths on the one hand and our daily lives that carry on in fairly ordinary ways, uh, which I think, dare I say it, tend to mute those hopes or blunt our optimism. We find ourselves, I think, wondering if the world, will will it ever change the world around us? Will it? Will Jesus ever come back? Of course, we wouldn't say it quite like that, would we? Um, Is he really at work in me? Does the hope that I profess really have what it takes to change the entire world, including my heart? This world in which I live and breathe and work and play. Well, in Luke 4, um, God's word will say to us this morning, I think, hey, Christian, not only do you have permission to live like the world that you long for and hope for is real and is robust and sure, like the heaven that you look forward to really is coming, not only do you have permission to do that, Christian, but more, it is the pressing need of our world around us that you lay hold of Christ as real. Bring him into your real life. Don't leave him in the world of the imaginary, in the sphere of your mind merely. So, so Christian, uh, let's pray together as we come to Luke 4. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we pray that your name would be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. That is to say, we pray that you would be known as you truly are in all of your glory with all of the richness and perfection of your character, may you be known on earth just as you really are. Father, may Christ be known in our world. For as people see Christ, we know they have seen the Father. And so, our God, we ask, please, may your name be hallowed here amongst us this morning, on earth as it is in heaven. Shape our minds, our wills, our attitudes all in the power of your spirit and through your word right now, please. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. Remember last week, Jesus baptised at the end of last week. So that's the story that we're in. He's John the Baptist and all the rest. And now we're focusing on Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. And on it goes from there. Um, May I suggest to us this morning, folks, um, that this episode in the life of Jesus, it has three features that give it a bit of a sense of unreality for us as modern readers as we read this ancient story. Please don't misunderstand me. I trust that we, uh, believers at least here, take this to be factual, you know, reliable, a historical event. It really happened. Um, You know, Jesus was really in the wilderness in an actual place. He abstained from eating actual food. You know, I believe it. we take it that it really... He had an encounter with the actual devil himself. What a thought. Uh, But no, I just mean this, Um, isn't this the kind of story that it's all well and good and we believe it's historical, but gosh, we struggle to connect it seriously with our day-to-day lives. I think there are three reasons for that. Number one, number one, who in this story 
can I possibly relate to? You know, in every story, you're kind of looking for a character to kind of go, yeah, that's me in the story. Well, who in this one? There's only two characters, or three if you include the Holy Spirit. There's only two, you've got the Son of God and you've got the devil himself. So who do you feel comfortably sort of lining up with and going, I'm just like that person? Do you see? Number one. Uh, number two, I feel thrown off, um, and I wonder if you felt the same as I read it through, I feel thrown off on tangents by some of the little details in the story at the risk of, I think, missing what really matters. Let me explain. I get to verse 2, for example, I only just read it, uh, where for 40 days he, Jesus, was tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and I'm a bit of a fan of Bear grills, and so I sort of put my survivalist hat on, and I'm wondering, what, what do you mean nothing? I ate nothing for 40 days. Do, do you really mean nothing, nothing, as in nothing, or is it just hyperbole? Like, is it just he only ate what he could scrounge, he didn't get a decent meal for those... 40 days? What do you mean, Luke, in describing it um, in quite that way? Or I hit verse 5 and I want to know where um, is the location in verse 5? Did the devil take him to space or something? Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. How do you do that? Or, or, or is that hyperbole again somehow? Um, it, it took him up to a, a very high mountain and it's kind of, you know, all the kingdoms of the world. Or verse 9, how, how on earth did they get to Jerusalem? Jesus was starving hungry. How did he get him all the way to Jerusalem and to the temple, presumably without there being witnesses? Uh, now, all of those you can sort of, you can explain. I mean, you're dealing with two supernatural beings, so you know, there's, there's plausible explanations to all these, but you see I'm thrown off on these tangents and I risk missing the main thrust of the passage that I think. What does this passage have to say to me in real life? But number three, the third thing that throws me off is simply this. Luke's story here fails to follow a script that I recognise from my own life. Um, For a story that is, what is it? It is laced with temptations laid by the devil himself. And yet the hero of the story comes through thoroughly unscathed. Do you see, that is a story that I find hard to personally relate to and connect with when I think about my own track record and I wonder um, yours as well, perhaps. It has a, a feeling of unreality to it, at least when I try to apply it to my life. Now, just hold that thought for a moment. Would you come back with me to a story that is all too real and that we can relate to all too readily, resonates with us very strongly as to the world that we actually live in? Uh, Please come back with me to Genesis chapter 1. So just hold your hand in Luke and and flick back across to Genesis chapter 1, if you would, back there right to the very beginning. Um, of your Bibles. Why Genesis? Well, because um, I'm sure you'll agree, part of the reason that Luke has just given us the genealogy of Jesus, do you remember from the very end of last week's sermon, um, part of the reason Luke has given us that genealogy must surely be precisely so that we'd see this temptation in the wilderness, do you see, in stark contrast with the one that we know so well from the book of Genesis. Um, So, do you remember last week, Jesus how did the passage go? The son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of and the son of and the son of, all the way down to what were the last words of chapter 3, verse 38? The son of Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God. And then chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. 
We have seen, do you see, a son of God go toe-to-toe with that old serpent before. Um, and, and that is exactly what Luke wants us to have in mind. But the details were a bit different. So Genesis chapter 1, let's just pick a few verses from there to get back in the scene. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What a world to live in. Beautiful and pristine and unstained. Skip down to verse uh, 15 of chapter 2. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. But then Adam and Eve follow the script that we know all too well. And here's the story I think that Luke wants us to have very much in mind. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you'll surely die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom... She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Um, It might not be the way that you and I like to put it, but that's the world that we know, isn't it? When faced with temptation, men or women, boys and girls, down through the ages, that's the world that we know. The story follows the script that we recognise all too well. God calling to a people that he lovingly made and said in a beautiful world, where are you now? Us. (laughs) Us furtively, what, scurrying around about in, in the shadows of life desperately trying to cover over our shames and hoping no one will see. What on earth happened to the world that we all want, the world beautiful as it was beforehand? Well, these days we just have to accept the reality, don't we? The world's not like that, it doesn't work that way, it's not that good anymore because this is the world that actually is. This is all there is. This is the world that you have to go to work to tomorrow morning. And so this is the world that we accept and it's the only world that's ever going to be. And so we start to believe, do you see? We even have phrases, uncharitable put-downs that we put on people, don't we? For people who naively try to make the world out to be a brighter and happier and shinier place than it really is. He's off with the fairies. You just wait until he gets out into the real world. (laughs) That'll bring him down a peg or two. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, what if we let Luke chapter 4 speak to our pessimism? 
about the world and what it will ever amount to? What if we let Luke chapter 4 and the script that's there start to open our eyes to what might be? Could we dare to do that? Because what if, what if this, Genesis 3, the real world, what if this isn't all that the world's ever going to be? Like really, what if this really isn't all that the world is ever going to be? And what if Luke chapter 4 just grants us permission to dream just a little bit and see what it might become and see what we might become as men and women, boys and girls in the hands of God? Uh, Please don't misunderstand me. Yes, of course, as Christians, we've got to accept the world as it really is. I don't mean stick our head in the sand and, and be off with the fairies. But if you are given to thinking that Genesis 3 is the only world that this world is ever going to be, then Luke 4 is a breath of fresh air for us, I think. Um, have a listen to Daryl Bock, okay? This, uh, this bloke, he's written this uh, marvellous but big and fat commentary on, on the book of Luke. And I love the way he picks this up, actually. It's so helpful, I think. He wants to know if you spotted the points of contrast between Adam's story and Jesus' story. Not, not just the similarities, we've seen the similarities, but what about the points of contrast? Well, Daryl Bock helps us, he says this. He says, Jesus' situation at his test contrasts with Adam's. Adam hadn't fasted at all, while Jesus had suffered lack for 40 days. Adam could eat from any tree in the garden but one, while Jesus was denying himself food. Adam was in paradise while Jesus was in the wilderness. Certainly, if environment was the determining factor in overcoming temptation, if environment was the determining factor in overcoming temptation, Jesus was playing at a disadvantage. The devil made his move with Jesus in this exposed condition. Now, folks, why does that even matter? Why is it important that we spot the contrasts between Adam and Jesus as we turn back to Luke chapter 4? I'll tell you why, let me tell you please. It's because a Jesus who can overcome the devil in the real world, in this real world, can fix this real world, do you see? A Jesus that can overcome the devil in the real world, not just in paradise, in his ivory tower, but in the real world. He speaks a a word of hope for what this real world could become, doesn't he? Jesus didn't need paradise to withstand the devil. Jesus stood his ground, not in paradise, but in the pits. This son of Adam, this son of God. Luke chapter 4, please read with me. Luke chapter 4, verse 2 now. For 40 days, Jesus was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Show me the man faced with bodily appetites, appetites that are screaming at him. Show me the man who can resist, who can stand who can not only quote the Word of God, but who can actually live by it. And notice that just a little detail in the text, the devil doesn't say to Jesus there, ask God to make it bread. Uh, No, you do it yourself. Tell this stone to become bread. 
And I wonder, could it be, is Satan there, do you think, carefully avoiding God's watchful eye altogether and suggesting that Jesus isn't really under God's watchful eye after all? You're not in the garden, Jesus. There's no God out here in the desert wandering in the cool of the day. Who'd ever know? No one's going to see. You're on the brink out here. At the very least, even if he did see, he'd turn a blind eye, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? You're hungry. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor for it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Um, have you ever fancied being a world leader? <laughs> um, I haven't particularly. Uh, it's, it's sort of, I, I look at them, I admire those men, but I don't particularly uh, want their job. No, to us, I, I, I'm not sure that we particularly aspire to all the kingdoms of the world, but could we couch it like this? If you will just give yourself, if you will just spend your life at something a little less than God, think of what you could have. Uh, Look at what you could get for yourself if you just let God take a back seat in your life for a while. You're an industrious person, you're talented, you're ambitious, you've got so much going for you. Uh, There's so much, it's, it's there for the taking. Just think what you could enjoy if you live for something other than Him for a while. Just let God take a back seat. Verse 8, Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And please notice, friends, that it is not beneath the devil to rip the very words of Scripture out of context and thrust them into the the minds of one of his victims with a view to having them take good words, God, good words and putting them to to ill effect. Come on, Jesus, let go and let God, won't you? Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And as we read on through Luke's Gospel, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, as he heads toward the cross and his death, we see that opportune time unfold and our Lord triumph yet, even as he goes to the cross for us. Um, Let's edge towards a conclusion, shall we? Um, I'm sure you've all heard the news uh, coming out of Canberra over the past uh, week or two now regarding our Deputy Prime Minister, you know, his affair, his separation and... um, and all the rest. And there are th- several things about that that could be said and probably should be said about abuses of power, about the significance of trust and faithfulness and fidelity for people who hold public office. Um, but do you know, perhaps the, the thing that I find saddest of all, it's not the depths of selfishness and, and sin and, and the rest. It, it, it's not even the, the thing I find the saddest of all isn't even the poor victims in this. That, and that, that really is an awful story to tell when you think about the collateral damage of um, our Deputy Prime Minister's indiscretions. Um, the thing that saddens me is this, that I find myself thoroughly unsurprised. Thoroughly unsurprised by it all. Is this the first time, friends, that we've seen politicians philander? Is it going to be the last? Is it going to be the last? Probably not. And so now... Uh, Well, we wait, 
don't we? Because we've, we've seen just over the last two days that he resigned from his position and so we wait to see who's going to be appointed. But do we expect anything to change? Thoroughly unsurprised. Do we expect anything to change in the, in the hearts of our dear mankind? Folks, the, the backstory to the Son of God's encounter with Satan in the wilderness there out uh, around and away from the Jordan. Uh, yes, the backstory to that is Adam and Eve. You know, will humanity ever amount to anything more than Adam's story or must we just accept that this is all that there is and ever will be and we are doomed, in a sense, to repeat the same mistakes as our first parents? Um, it speaks to that. But there's another backstory. And Jesus gives it away with each of his quotes from the Old Testament scripture there. Every single time that he quotes scripture, did you realise that? You might have it in a footnote in your Bible. Every single time Jesus quotes scripture there, he's quoting from the words of Moses in Deuteronomy. He quotes, in other words, from a moment in history where the hopes of the people of God hang in the balance. They stand poised on the edge of the promised land with the words of God ringing in their ears as if to say, will your future be different to your past? Can you carve out a new way? Will you ever amount to more than just being another iteration of the sorry story of the sons of Adam? Um, You and I, we we look back at Israel's history because we know how that episode in Israel's history went or we look around the world uh, in our day, we look at Canberra, Uh, We look at our own furtive (laughs) track records in this world, following in the footsteps of our first parents. And we find ourselves saying, well, welcome to the real world. We're just the same. But Luke 4 would tell us this, wouldn't it, brothers and sisters? That you may not be used to this script, but Jesus means to write a new one for this world. Jesus means to write a new script for your life. You might think that you know how the real world works. You might think that you know how the real you works. But this son of Adam, this son of God, means for the world of our imaginations, means for the world of our dreams and hopes to become the very real world. Friends, let me say it clearly. If Luke 4 teaches us nothing else, it must teach us this. When you look at Jesus, godly and perfect and living by the word, the very words of God, our loving and gracious, good God, when we see Jesus uninterested in what he could wring out of God, uh, because the only life he's interested in is the one that lives for God. When you look at Jesus and he seems just on another plane to you, unreal to you, almost imaginary to you, too good to be true. Luke 4 is saying, pinch yourself because he's real. He's absolutely real. And if there is to be hope for this world, a real hope, not off with the fairies, then he is it. Jesus is it. And more, if there's to be hope for our lives, for your life, a real hope, then he is it. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, what a terrible mistake we make to cut off these stories of Jesus from reality and from the real world. For if and as we cut off Jesus, then where's our hope gone? 
Oh God, would you please teach us. Teach us to face every day, even tomorrow morning, with a clear conviction that Christ is not only real, but he's the kind of real that will outlast, that will outshine all that is wrong with us, personally, all that is wrong with our world. Father, we want to be a people marked by gratitude and not by a grizzled, cynical mind. And we want to be people marked by hope, real hope, not by hopelessness. Father, we ask, please, may a robust, may a real sense of hope in the Lord Jesus so shine from us that people desire our company because we're looking for a better world and we even believe and we even act like it's real. So, Father, do give us wisdom, please, and tact. We know that we must await the return of Christ for it all to come together, but we ask even now that by your Spirit we'd be, that we'd be little beacons of the world to come and so put the very real Christ on display in our real lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.